All right, I want you to look at the screen for a moment, and I want you to raise your hand um, if you know what this means. Jot and tittle. What is that referring to? Anyone raise your hand if you know what jot and tittle refers to? Okay, there's a, there's a small handful that are raising their hand. There's a couple that are like this. I sort of think I know. Um, I am just old enough and have been in church long enough that I have some of the king's old English in me. This is the King James translation of a reference from Jesus, um, basically teaching how vital the Old Testament is, okay? We're going to look at that passage in just a second, and it'll make more sense. But you just learned something really fascinating, jot and tittle. That is not a common phrase around here. I almost quizzed our staff um, to see if anyone knew what that was about. The Old Testament is vital for Christians, The Old Testament is not the Jewish scripture, it is the Christian scripture. Last week I attempted to get you pumped up about your immediate need for Micah, even if you didn't walk in thinking, man, I need the book of Micah in my life right now. Remember that all of the text of the Old Testament actually misunderstand and misinterpret the Old Testament if we do not have Jesus as the central key to interpretation. Today I want to give you kind of one more nudge toward eagerly devouring the meat of Micah, even if it is sometimes hard to digest. In Matthew, Jesus makes an astonishing and sweeping announcement. Turn to Matthew 5.17 if you'd like, or you can just listen. I'm going to read it. It will not be on the screen. Sorry. Matthew 5.17. Jesus makes an astonishing and sweeping announcement. Here's what he's saying. Not a stroke of the pen, nor a single atom of ink is void or irrelevant in the Old Testament. Catch this. Not a jot or tittle. Jot would be stroke of the pen. An atom of ink, that is a tittle. A tittle, by definition, is like a tiny particle. So Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 17. uh, 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. What's the law and the prophets? It's code for Old Testament. What Bible did Jesus have to read? Not the New Testament. It hadn't been written yet. Whenever he refers to the scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, King James, not a jot or tittle, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Hear me, Jesus Christ came on a fulfillment mission of the Old Testament, not an abolishment mission of the Old Testament. Huge difference. Not a letter is anything less than vital until all is accomplished. If you're taking notes this morning and it helps you to stay on track, which it always helps me, unless I'm preaching, then I stop taking notes, write these three things down. Number one is this, Jesus unmistakably affirms the value of the Old Testament. That's what this passage is saying. He is unmistakably affirming the value of the Old Testament. Therefore, no responsible follower of his would ever dismiss the Old Testament as boring, useless, or somehow less than. Is it harder? Yes. Is it more confusing and take more work to understand what's happening? Absolutely. But it's not less than. Number three, attention to the details in all of the Bible leads to greatness in Jesus' estimation. And conversely, dismissal of the details of the Bible and teaching others to do the same leads to being least in Jesus' estimation. Man, as a preacher, this is the kind of thing that keeps me up at night. God, I don't want to be dismissive of parts of the Bible because I don't know how to teach it, I'm uncomfortable with it, or I'm not living it. I don't feel like, you know, authoritative in it. The Bible says that 
if I do that, skip over parts, and teach others to do the same, I'll be least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, it doesn't say I'm losing my salvation, does it? It's not a salvation issue. It's a quality thing. Do this with excellence. It matters how we look at the scripture. Man, this is not just for pastors and professors, though. I don't think it should just keep pastors and professors up at night. You know who else I think it should? I think it should keep parents up at night. Parents, I think you ought to lose sleep over this kind of thing. Not in, not in sinful anxiety, be anxious for nothing. But in prayer and supplication, bring your request to God. Say, God, I don't want to miss the details of the Bible. I am not an attention to detail person. My wife could scream amen right now. All of the staff could scream amen. Some of you who I don't return your phone calls and emails are like, yeah, duh, we know your weakness, Dave. I am not an attention to detail type person by nature. But in the scriptures, I I pray and say, God, give me grace to give myself to the attention uh, of, of the details of scripture. Parents, hear this. Get your life and teaching right. Much is at stake, not just for yourself, but for those who rely on your teaching. If you're not a parent, guess what? You're actually an influencer of people around you. So man, getting your own life right matters for people around you. Here's number three. All of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He didn't come to abolish and throw away the Old Testament. He came to fulfill it. Man, this leans us forward into it. Say, Jesus, how are you going to fulfill this? Jesus is the goal of every detail in the Bible. Now that Jesus has come and ascended, no Old Testament text can be understood apart from how it is fulfilled in him. Clearly, before Messiah comes, you read the Old Testament a certain way. But after Jesus has come and and shown himself to be the Messiah, risen and ascended, now we look back on the Old Testament with a new lens. So, I want you to get pumped up or stay pumped up about doing the work of digesting Micah. Like the beloved artichoke, yes, I'm bringing artichokes up in a sermon twice in one year. Um, Micah takes some instruction and practice to eat, but it's so worth it, right? That's what an artichoke is. You need a little bit of instruction to understand it. Otherwise, you're like, that's a terrible, terrible vegetable. If you get a tiny bit of instruction and a little bit of practice to it, you're like, amazing, and you love artichokes. All right, turn to Micah 1. That's where you're going to be. Find it in the Old Testament, and we will get there. Micah is a prophet who points out injustice, and he points ahead to Jesus, Okay? If you want Micah in a, in a sentence, Micah points out injustice and he points ahead to Jesus. That's what we're going to see. That's why we've called it just Jesus. So what happens when consequences catch up to us? We're going to look at the rest of Micah 1 this morning. What happens when consequences catch up to you? How do you survive the pain of your own past choices, or the pain of others' past choices leveled against you. What we see in the book of Micah is this. The people of God are cruising through life. They are playing their summer road trip Spotify playlist, and wham, Micah shows up, and he's the party pooper. He comes in and he gives a message that just levels them. He faithfully preaches the gospel. And you say, wait a minute, the gospel in the Old Testament? Yes, the gospel in the Old Testament. Micah comes as a forerunner to all other Christians, which is to be a witness to the truth, a witness to the gospel. The gospel literally means what kind of news? Good news. The good news of the gospel is always preceded by what? Really bad news. Micah 1 is bad news. So we are going to be in bad news, Micah 1, all morning long as a forerunner to understanding the good news. Follow? So that's where we are. I had a guy named Kevin, and he was our high school small group leader. Kevin was a relatively new Christian, um, but the thing that stood out most about Kevin was this. He was a San Jose police officer. Man, as like a freshman, sophomore guy in a small group, 
This was the coolest small group you could think of because it led to so many tangents and cool stories. We're like, Kevin, tell us what you did this week. And he would just fill our, our minds with all kinds of different stuff going on. Here's something that stood out about Kevin. He said this. He said this. We asked him one time. We said, what are the, what's the scariest call you've ever gone on? Aren't you scared when you go in there? Like, of course I'm scared. Here's what he said. He said, the scariest kinds of calls, hands down, are domestic disturbances. That's code for lovers' spats. And he said this. He said, those are the scariest calls by far. The sheer intensity of the rage and violence that come from people who are lovers, who are fighting, is downright scary. That kind of blew me away. And it stood with me all these years. I thought, wow, that's the scariest kind of call. Why is that? Well, the reason is this. Those you love the most can hurt you the most, right? And conversely, those that you love the most, you can hurt the most. Uh, the youth this summer are learning uh, just, we're, we're talking about love and sex and dating and all kinds of things. And the moment I said that the first Tuesday, man, people were like, whoa, did the pastor just say the S word? Not that word, sex. Yes, we did. The Bible's chock full of it. So we're walking through it. Last Tuesday, we looked at what's the difference between infatuation, fairy tale love, and the real thing. And I just kind of just went through this list. And when my kids got home from school, by the way, parents, this is how this is set up. Bump, set, spike, and volleyball, right? Uh, we, are, we are setting up parents to come in and just go boom and crush it. So we are setting up the conversation for you to keep it going. The best place to learn about this is from God in the home. Hands down. That's what we drive things toward. So my kids came home and my three teens and then my 10-year-old kind of snuck in on the conversation. He's like, wait, what are we talking about? And so we went through the list together and we just kind of talked through it. It was a great conversation. So Andres, thank you for setting me up as a parent. Let me tell you some ones of note that, that, that talk about what is lust versus lasting love. What is fairy tale versus real? Fairy tale is possessive. Real love celebrates relating to others. Fairy tale love is self-centered. Real love is self-controlled. One more. Fairy tale love has hostile breakups. Real love doesn't panic when problems arise. Man, all three of these feed into why is it that when lovers are spatting, it's so volatile, it's so scary. It's because of these kinds of things. Those that you've opened up to the deepest are those who can hurt you the deepest. When you enter into an intimate relationship, you are sharing insecurities that you have, vulnerabilities that you have in confidence. The hope is that you would build one another up. And inevitably, people always build up in the early seasons and moments of, of a relationship. And what happens when those very insecurities and vulnerabilities are turned and used against you? Man, there is just an avalanche of violence and rage that can come from that. Now, add to that the biblical concept of covenant. We're going to be talking a lot about covenant in Micah. Covenant, today, most people think about a contract. Right? And covenant has contract-ish things to it, but it's even deeper. It's something entered into in a much more intimate way. A marriage is not a contract. When I do pre-marriage counseling, I never say, okay, you're going to enter into a contract, sign here, sign here, and we sort of divvy things up. That is setting yourself up for divorce. Well, they, didn't, they, they violated the contract. Whoop, we're done. The picture of marriage is a picture of God in covenant with us. As a husband who's also a Christian, I really feel that I'm allowed to be, unf be unfaithful and divorce and leave my wife the moment God is unfaithful and divorces the church. That's my role model. That's who I am emulating. That's my small, tiny picture pointing to the giant reality of, of marriage and what marriage is all about. So add the biblical concept of marriage to this overlay of lover's spats. And again, you have hurt, betrayal, and devastation that can be life-altering. We're going to get more into this as we go, but right here in chapter 1, I say from the text, this is what Micah is talking about. This is what the book of Micah is about. God, catch this, 
is the jilted lover. In this story, the betrayed husband is God himself. You know who Micah is talking to? The wandering, delusional wife. God's very own people who are cheating on God and then justifying it. I want you to marvel at, marvel at a couple of things here. Number one, marvel that God, creator of all, has seen fit to put himself in this position. We don't have time to go into this, but couldn't God have just created obedient slaves, like programmed to never disappoint and never, ever uh, betray or disobey? Of course he could have. If he's all sovereign, he could have done that. That is not the way real love works. There's some fundamental laws to that, but that's not how he did it. Number two, marvel that the ones doing the betraying were utterly oblivious to the seriousness of the offense. They are cruising through life, listening to Spotify summer playlist, going, what is the big deal? Totally clueless to how serious they were in trouble. Number three, marvel that God still offers hope of restoration, even after being repeatedly cheated on. Those of you married, those of you who had uh, some other kind of breakup, imagine that. Imagine being repeatedly cheated on. And still offering hope of restoration. That's what we see in Micah. Okay, let me read verses 2 through 5. And we're going to break this up. In your notes it says, hear ye, hear ye. And we're going to read this, this part. In ESV, the title of this uh, section of scripture simply says, the coming destruction. So that's where we're going. We're sort of heading into that. It's a reminder uh, of, of, of sort of what this, this chapter is about. So the picture is God holding court and pronouncing what is to come. Here we go. Verse 2. Hear you, hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? All right, I want you to listen for a moment, and I want to know how many people enjoy this sound. Oh, yeah. Love that. No one loves that, right? How many of you have that as your alarm? Anyone have that as their alarm? Yeah. I think I have this as like a timer ending. I have it set for something else. And literally people in my house are like, ew, turn it off. Like they're all mad at me. I'm like, my timer's done. That's all that's happening. But in their minds, it's wake up time, right? No one loves the sound of alarms. Hear me. Prophets are alarms. That's what they are. Do you notice that Micah does not start in with some niceties? He doesn't tell a joke at the start of his book. He doesn't give any pleasant greeting like Paul does. He just jumps right in because prophets are alarms, warning you with unwanted truth. You wake up almost every day to unwanted truth. Oh man, it's time to get up. Except for you morning people. The rest of us don't like you. you. Alarms tell you unwanted truth. Be honest. How many of you have an engine light on, come on in your car, and you just go, oh man, and you like put tape over it, or you try not to look at it, or whatever. Anyone in that camp? That's me, by the way. I totally do that. No one else? All right. I'm just a pagan. That's okay. Um, that's just, that's ignoring. I don't want to know that news. I just want to drive my car. That's all I really want to do right now. Warnings give you um, really unwanted news, but important news. I would say this about prophets. Prophets are loving you by yelling at you. Prophets are loving you by yelling at you, making sure that they are heard. Some of you say, well, God would never yell. He's a God of love. He would never do that. Tell that to a parent of a toddler who is in the way of a car backing up. Would the parent yell? Yes. Would it be done in love? Yes. Why? Because there is imminent 
warning that needs to take place. They want to make sure that they're heard. Now, some of you might get offended at this. I know there's different generational ways of parenting. But there are so many times that I'm walking through a place and I hear mom or dad go, can you please do this, this, or this? And little four-year-old is like, "Uh uh-uh, not going to do it. Okay, can we have a a second to talk about it? And they're sitting here with this calm voice and they're trying to reason with them. They're trying to use all this logic. And in my mind, um, I don't know that much about parenting, but I have had nine kids and I just thought, you know, you can't reason with the child in this moment. There are other tactics, other tools that you need in your toolbox than saying pretty please, Right? Toddler in the way of, of moving car, you don't say pretty please, you yell at little Johnny. Little Johnny, can you please? Oops. I mean, you got you to have that tool in your toolbox in love to yell at little Johnny. Uh, prophets are doing this. It is, now my wife's all up in her, thinking, gosh, that's a terrible story. That wasn't in the notes. Um, Micah's message is, a, is an intentionally shocking message to a sleepy people. Most of you that I've talked to do not like or resonate with people standing on a soapbox, yelling at people, holding up signs that say, turn or burn. Most people say, yeah, I don't know if that person really is on our team. I don't know if that should be done. You know what that person standing there is doing? They are acting like the Old Testament prophets. They are up there telling truth in a way that is shocking, annoying, attention-getting, they cannot be missed. I've shared this before, but one time I'm walking uh, into the building with an unsaved family member. We're going to a Sharks, uh, Sharks game, and there is a guy standing on this thing just shouting truth. Everything he said was exactly accurate. I am walking towards this, per- this person with, with my, my relative. This relative loves to needle Christians. He goes, all right, so that guy, is he on your team? That's what he said. Here's what happened. And I thought, oh, man. And as I'm walking, we walk past the person. And I kid you not, for the next period and a half, we talked about spiritual matters. Well into the hockey game. I love hockey. I couldn't care less about hockey. I was getting to share Jesus and talk about what happened. That person stirred up a conversation that would not have been stirred up otherwise. Is he on my team? Absolutely. Are all those people on my team? No, they're not. (laughs) I tend to listen from a distance and go, I wonder how this is. But I I pray for people who who are doing that. Um, So so, um, a shocking message for a sleepy people. Man, we live in a sleepy area spiritually. So the words are just in your face. Pay attention. The Lord is coming out of his place and will come down. This made me think of this phrase. Don't make me come down there. Don't make me come down there is usually said by a red-faced authority figure, right? Can you track with this a little bit? Some of you are like, yeah, my kids track with it all the time. That's me. Hear me. God is not a red-faced, out-of-control authority figure when he says this. He is saying, don't make me come down there. I am coming down there is what he's saying. God instead is not out of control, but he's also not out of touch, There are some that are disengaged. Instead of saying, uh, don't make me come down there, they just never go down there. That's not God. So God is saying that he is coming down there. He sees what's going on, and he is going to step up and intervene. We learn something about God here in this passage, that he is sovereign over all the earth. Look at verse 2 for a minute. Micah says, hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. How inclusive does that sound? Pretty inclusive. That would be every living person on earth. It's not just those who belong to him that God rules over, that God sees, that God judges. God sees, rules, and judges all peoples of the earth. What's more is that God is not only transcendent, That's a term theologians use to kind of describe above it all, the ultimate ruler, the creator, outside of our comprehension. But God is also imminent. David Crowder says he's closer than your own skin. 
God is beyond what you could begin to imagine. That's transcendency. God is also imminent. He's closer than your blood cells moving through your body. You can't imagine how involved God is in your life. All of you. God is holding court. He is coming out of his holy place to get involved personally. Yay! We think of Jesus. Here's the reality. He's coming down and it's not going to be pretty. God's going to come again in bodily form in about 700 years. That's called Christmas. That's the birth of Jesus Christ at Bethlehem. This is God coming down and personally getting involved because things are not good. Unmistakably, the blame and the reason for the destruction is the people's sin. They have no one to look around and point the finger at and blame. The the blame is on them. What we see in chapter 1 is what we know in our life, and that is this. Rebellion ruins everything. I've been sitting with this phrase. I would add this to what I wrote down, I think, on Monday. Rebellion ruins everything always. It is never good in my life when I rebel against what is good and true. Rebellion ruins everything. We're seeing that. Remember that good and just, your concept of what is good, your concept of what is just, which we are being given in the book of Micah, it changes as you grow in truth, right? So as you mature, as you understand the deeper things, you go, oh yeah, what I thought was good when I was younger is no longer good. What I thought was just when I was seven with my siblings changes when I was 17. I'm starting to see the bigger picture. God is declaring what is true to people in spite of what they believe to be true. This is needed in your life and in my life all the time. God declaring to us what is true in spite of what I believe to be true. There is a certain brand of social justice today that adamantly teaches this principle, that any challenge to a person's individual experience of oppression makes you an oppressor. There's a brand of social justice that says if someone has an experience and you, and you challenge that in any way, question that in any way, ask any follow-up questions, that you are immediately placed in the camp of the oppressor. Thus making a person's experience, catch this, ultimate authority. One of the things that is ripping the church apart is this. The word social justice in some camps of Christianity, any mention of that means that brother or sister or church leader or church must be buying into all these tenets that I hear going on that are unbiblical and untrue, and I know that to be a fact. So they dismiss that altogether and outright. Hear me clearly, we should be very adamant about defining terms when we're engaged in conversation, when we're engaged in receiving truth and receiving input and trying to learn and grow. We ought to be very careful by saying, what do you mean by that? Just so I'm clear on what we, what we say. Because if you read different blogs than I do, if you're reading different reporters than I am, if you're listening to different scientists than I am, then the whole world has gone insane and changed definitions and sort of slipped meaning into things. Okay, so social justice, don't dismiss it outright, don't receive it outright. There's a brand that teaches any challenge to one's personal experience of oppression makes you an oppressor. Let me qualify this with a couple of things. It should go without saying, but I will say it, that racism is real, and each person's experience matter to God. And therefore, Christian... It matters to me. Each person's experience matters to God. Therefore, it matters to me. The Bible teaches the virtue of compassion. That's what that's talking about. Come alongside with feeling. That's what compassion means. Come alongside them with feeling. Let their experience speak to you. Let it matter to you. Kindness, gentleness. These are virtues of the Christian faith. Put them into practice with the help of Jesus. 
I would say this, if you are not actively seeking to grow in your understanding of where all the hurt and hate are coming from in our city and in our country, then you are missing a giant opportunity for healing and for good. There is the sin of commission. That's where you commit sins. There is the sin of omission. That's where you are not doing what you ought to be doing. If you have thrown up your hands and go, I don't know why people are all worked up, and that's where you leave it, I would say you are sinning by omission. You are not doing the hard work of going, why are people so stirred up? I think it may have been Les who gave me a book years ago. Les gives me all these books. Thanks, Les. I like to read. It may have been Les, and the book title was simply this. This is 10, 15 years ago. Why the rest hate the West. And it showed a bunch of what looked like sort of Middle Eastern region people just, just angry with probably a burning American flag on the cover. You ought to figure out, why do evangelicals have such a bad name in many parts of society? Where does the hurt and the hate come from? So if you're not actively engaged in this, I lean into you and press into you. You are missing a giant opportunity for good. So here's an example. I will never, ever, ever experience the world as a brown-skinned female, ever. I can't throw up my hands and just go, well, that's not me. Not my problem. I can't understand that. You know what I can do? I can learn to empathize with what it is like with a humble, listening approach. I can reach out to people who don't look like me and don't have the same private parts as me, and I can seek to hear without judgment. I could seek to humbly be wrong about some preconceived ideas I may have had. The book of James talks a lot about the sin of favoritism, the sin of judging a book by its cover while never bothering to read the book. That said, catch this, perceptions are notoriously unreliable to what is true. Perceptions are notoriously unreliable to what is true. Praise God for truth that transcends our experiences. Amen? Man, we all need this. You ought to be corrected regularly when you read the Bible. Both Israel and Judah, and by that, that's the northern kingdom and southern kingdom. Remember east and west of the Mississippi? If I say, hey, you east of the Mississippi, you west, what am I talking about? I'm talking about the United States of America, Right? This is not the united kingdom of God right now. This is a divided kingdom, but it's northern and southern kingdom. Both Israel and Judah perceived that God was okay with them spiritually sharing his bed with other lovers. That's the shocking nature of what he's saying. Here's the truth. He wasn't okay with that. He was not fine with that arrangement. In love, he stirs up Micah to proclaim truth that transcended their beliefs to their own good. Here's a quick hint, by the way. Any religion, and we have now religions that are secular and those that are theistic, any religion, any worldview that elevates experience as ultimate, and listen to the second part, and creates a culture where you aren't allowed to question or challenge with facts is a deadly cult that you should run from immediately. Let me say that one more time and see if you, just, just in your conversations and the, the climate around us, any religion, secular or theistic, that elevates experience as ultimate and creates a culture where you are not allowed to question or challenge with facts is a deadly cult that you should run from immediately. Now, callously rushing to stats, figures, and facts with an air of prove it to me, prove your experience to me, man, that's unkind. That is devaluing to a fellow image bearer. You become part of the problem and you confirm their experience of injustice. Repent. On the other side of the extreme, cowardly avoiding truth cowardly avoiding facts and figures in the name of being understanding and sensitive to the hurting is also unkind and devaluing to fellow image bearers. 
You become part of the problem and you perpetuate injustice. Repent. What is good and just comes from God alone, who is good and just. What was our title for going through Luke? It was the good doctor that came right out of Luke 18, 19. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. It was actually a statement of deity. He didn't say, I'm not good. He's saying, you don't even understand what you're saying. I'm the embodiment of good. I am good in a body. That's what you see in Jesus. You don't even understand what you're saying. He says this declaration, no one is good but God alone. That means this, that a person who finds the gospel understands justice, and you don't understand justice and goodness without the gospel. So let's get into the crux of the rest of the chapter. What exactly is the problem? You ever have a friend, a parent, a spouse, and you're like, what are you so angry about? And it's all settled down. The big feelings are sort of settled down. You're like, can we get, like, what's the crux of the issue? What's the problem here? That's what I want to do right now is say, what is God so angry about? What exactly did they do wrong? By the way, as I read Micah, I read myself because the Bible is a mirror. It is showing what is true. One commentator I read this week said this, if Micah does not make you feel uncomfortable, it is a clear sign you are not reading it correctly. So there might be a moment right now where you need to pray, God, would you help me by your grace to meekly receive the implanted word? I say this all the time. Don't listen to this for someone else. As we're reading this, don't nudge your spouse, nudge your friend, say, ooh, I've got to share that with my roommate. They need to hear this. Uh Uh-uh, you need to hear this. I'll tell you, preacher, preach to yourself. I've been preaching myself all week long. This is a devastating chapter. It's humbling. I hope to lead you to a place of fearfully begging for God for mercy at the end of this sermon. That's where this chapter leads us to. As we demand justice be served for the wrongs of others? Are we equally interested in justice when it comes to the wrong in us? That's the question that I put before you as we start to read this. I want you to make one more note. The judgment of God in the Bible, whenever you hear about the judgment of God, most often it is referring to God's own people. Those who would say, I belong to God and God belongs to me. That's who it's leveled against. That's certainly the case of Micah. So lest we think, yeah, those sinners out there, those pagans out there, it's actually talking to those who would profess to belong to God. So verses 5 through 7, you've cheated on God. What I want to show you is this. There are two very specific ways that Israel and Judah have broken covenant with God. First, they have violated the loyalty, exclusive nature of the covenant. Again, think of marriage. Marriage is a picture of God as husband and church as the bride. Old Testament, God the Father, uh, people of Israel. That's the covenant. It's an exclusive nature. Verse 5. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? That's the capital city of Jacob. And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? That's the capital city of Judah. Verse 6, therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valleys and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. So Israel and Judah broke covenant loyalty. This is akin to saying they have spiritually fornicated. The mere fact that there were high places mentioned in verse 3 and verse 5, shows that something was wrong. What are high places in the Old Testament? What does that mean? Those were places of pagan worship. In Jerusalem and at the temple, that was the prescribed place of worship. 
So worshiping in the wrong way, in the wrong place, means you've got the wrong God. Him coming and saying, I'm going to destroy your high places, uh, is, is revealing the problem. There's idolatry going on. How about the language of uncover her foundations and fee of a prostitute? Again, this ought to land, this lands shocking in our culture. Think of how utterly promiscuous we are as a culture. How many images and language and just free-flowing memes go out where you're like, wow, that's really deeply offensive, shocking language. We're still shocked by it. That's in the Bible? Now imagine a shame-honor culture where much more of this was just way more on the down low. Micah comes like an alarm, a shocking message to a sleepy people. You are spiritually perverting yourselves. Vivid pictures of what we see in the rest of the Bible, that God equates idol worship with adultery. Just as married people, you wouldn't share your bed with another. God doesn't do that with him and his people God is our one and only husband. He is faithful to us. We are to be faithful to him in kind. In verses 8 and 9, Micah basically inserts himself as mourning the judgment to come. So he says, you don't know what God's so angry about? There it is. Now here's Micah mourning what is to come. Listen to this. He names nocturnal creatures that are known for being loners and sort of wail through the night. Verse 8, for this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. The rest of chapter 1, here's what Micah does. He makes this masterful poem where he basically uses word plays, sarcasm, and double rings of meaning to expose each city's identity and the specific ways that they've sinned against God. He's my kind of guy. There's like sarcasm and wit in here, and sort of the way he says it is really masterful. It takes some work for us to uncover this. Hear me really clearly. Sometimes people put way more on pastors than you ought to put. In fact, regularly, I'm only a step higher, but it's probably good that I regularly come down and preach from here, or maybe even sit in a chair, or maybe just lay on the ground and look up at you, right? Don't put me on a pedestal. I will climb down every time. I do not memorize these Old Testament cities and have this floating around in my brain. Wow, that guy's really smart. No, he's got a commentary. That's it. That's all it is. In fact, I want to teach you regularly. There's so much good stuff in the scriptures. I'm just forced with a deadline to teach this. So I'm a couple steps ahead of you because I put some work into it. I've mined out this. And when you see this, it's like, wow, that's actually really masterful and clever. Let me show you a couple of things of what I mean. Verse 10, Beth le Afra. That's a city's name, okay? Beth le Afra. Here's what that word means. That means house of dust, Right? Bethlehem means house of dust. So the inhabitants should roll in dust, expressing their distrust. Okay, think of the Old Testament where you heap dust on your head and fling it in the air as a sign of mourning, repentance, lamentation. So what he's doing is he's he's cleverly grabbing each of the city and, and he's gonna he's gonna sort of work through the thing. Let me give you another one. Verse eleven. Shafir means beautiful or pleasant. The residents of Shafir would become the opposite of their name shamefully naked when the invasion comes. Remember, he's pronouncing judgment. Here is what's sure to come. Inhabitants of Zayan, a town that sounds like the Hebrew word translated come out, he says, will not be able to come out and escape their town. Do you see what he's doing? So each city and town, he's just working his way through the countryside. The people of Beth Ezel, Beth means house, house of removal, would lament because the Lord would would remove his support. In verse 13, sarcastically, Micah urges the people, people of Lachish, a town known for its horses, to hitch a team of horses to a chariot so he can escape from God. Well, you can't do that. You've leaned on horses. You've prided yourself on what you're all about. That will not help you in the day of judgment that is now sure to come because you're cheating on God. That's the message. Let me read for you 
Eugene Peterson has passed away. Eugene Peterson was a phenomenal pastor that pastored uh, in pretty rural parts. He was deeply involved in the language of Scripture. And the message is something that he came out with a long time ago, and he was trying to write a, a, a translation that would help his grandkids. So the way we would read, you know, every jolt and tittle. Well, what does that mean, Grandpa? Well, that means like stroke of the pen and Adam of ink. Oh, okay. He just went right to the second part. Let me read for you parts of Micah 1 where he's doing this, where he has gone in and he has discovered, what does that town mean? What does it sound like? Here's how it would have maybe sounded more to the original hearers. Ready? Here it goes. Micah 1.10 in the message. Don't gossip about this in Telltown. Don't waste your tears. In Dustville, roll in the dust. In Alarm Town, the alarm is sounded. The citizens, the, the, the citizens of Exitburg will never get out alive. Lament, last stand city. There's nothing in you left standing. The villagers of Bittersweet Town, I mean of, of Bitter Town, wait in vain for sweet peace. Harsh judgment has come from God and entered Peace City. All you who live in Chariotville, get in your chariots for flight. You led the daughter of Zion into trusting not God but chariots. Similar sins in Israel also got their start in you. Go ahead and give your goodbye gifts to Goodbyesville. Mirage Town beckoned but disappointed kings of Israel. Inheritance City has lost its inheritance. Glory Town has seen its last glory. So again, if you go in, the NIV, the NIV, if you have the NIV translation, it has all these footnoted for you, just sitting right there. If you go in and look at all these towns, that's what it's doing. Micah uses all of his God-given creativity and boldness to wake up people all around him. You will want to flee the wrath to come, but you will be unable to outrun or outwit God. The indictment has been read, and it is time for judgment. He closes the chapter with one verse saying, behave like this because of the shame and grief that are coming. I'm back in ESV now. Look at verse 16. Make yourselves bald. It's a sign of shame in the Middle East still to this day. Cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle for they shall go from you into exile. I want to wrap up by looking at facing the music ourselves. Isn't it always easier to see the speck in other people's eyes while completely ignoring the log in your own eye? You know, judgment is coming for us like it did with Israel and Judah. Every one of us will one day face the music. Here's the question. Are we going to do it willingly or begrudgingly? That's it. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. By the way, Jesus' call for repentance is a call to face the music. <laughs> He's saying, turn around. Face the consequences of your sin. Here's 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Look at it on the screen. So whether you are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due and what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. Why? Why is God so unspeakably angry? It's because sin is evil. Because rebellion ruins everything. He will not let us go unpunished. This is actually evidence of his love and goodness. In fact, to dismiss this, to not be angry at wicked evil, would indict him as the moral monster that a lot of atheists claim that God is completely misunderstanding the reconciler, Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever prayed, Lord, thank you for being as committed to judgment and, in, and, and justice as you are to redemption and rescue, but you should. We sing all the time, we celebrate all the time about God's redemption, about his rescue, about his commitment to save an unjust people. How about his commitment to justice and judgment? 2 Corinthians 5 ought to put the fear of God in us. Fear is the healthiest thing we can have if it's accurate. In fact, the Bible says that fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. 
Let me invite the band up right now, and as they come up, I want you to consider this, that idol worship and idolatry is as rampant in the U.S. right now as in any country at any point in history ever. Let me zoom in more narrow. It is as rampant in us, quite possibly, as any other person who's ever walked the earth. Idols can be made with hands. I've made a little golden ferret. I will worship it. I will get my meaning from it, right? We can make it with our hands. We can also make it with our minds. Ever hear this? The God that I believe in would never yell. The God that I believe in would never create hell and never send anyone there. Well, what you've done is you've made an idol in your mind. You are drawing meaning and purpose and sacrificing to that idol. Hear me, all idol worship leads to bondage. If I could put an unholy trinity of idol worship in play right now, the flavor of the year in our city, itself, state, and social approval. Self, state, and social approval. Man, people are sacrificing to these idols, thinking that from them they will draw meaning, they will draw security, they will draw happiness, but they will lead to bondage every single time. Just as everyone wants to create their own brand, their own story, their own personhood, so do regions. Let me, let me say this about our region. I made my own little list. You can make your own. It's kind of fun. What charges would our hometown and surrounding cities have leveled against them? Let me take a stab at it. Garlic. I mean, Gilroy. Garlic capital of the world. You stink to high heaven with your sin and not in a good way like garlic. Do you know the way to San Jose? I do, says God. And I'm coming right now to render judgment. It's time to face the music. Berkeley. You pride yourself in righteous protest. I, the righteous one, protest you. Napa, you're famous for creating fine wine, but inside you have rotten grapes that are producing bitter raisins. San Francisco, you are proud and you export pride. Do you not know that God opposes all of that but gives grace to the humble. Bay Area, you focused on the high cost of housing while ignoring the skyrocketing, the, the skyrocketing cost of your sin. Brace yourself because rent is due. That's my stab at it. I think we have a lot in our Bay Area, right in my surrounding hometown, to weep and mourn and wail. If some of you come bald next week, I will understand what's happening. Close your eyes, listen to James 4 as we lead into some song. James 4, 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Amen.